when a new king was crowned, they would always get rid of all trace of the previous ruler to cement their own rule. It's just like a football manager or a businessman coming in and putting their stamp on things. As one writer uh, puts it, the policy was solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, everybody practiced it. And if you look back at chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, it is very clear that David was not the kind of person who was afraid to exercise the military muscle. Just look at all his victories that are mentioned there. David was not a pushover. But David remembered his promise. He could have forgotten it. He could have said, that's all in the past. I've got to be pragmatic. God's kingdom can't afford to be in danger. But he didn't. Instead, he acted on his word. And three times in verse 1, in verse 3, and verse 7... The word kindness is used. The word kindness is used to describe his actions. Now maybe this is just me. When I hear the word kindness, I tend to think of it as a kind of soft, uh, gentle word. But in the Bible, it's a very, very strong word. It is the Hebrew word hesed. And it can be translated goodness, loyalty, faithfulness, steadfast love. It can be used of love between people. But it is also the big word to describe God's promised covenant love. In my Bible, the Old Testament is about 600 pages long. But the word hesed, apparently, I haven't counted, occurs 239 times. So you, you can hardly turn a page in it before you bump into it. Passages like this, Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, abounding in steadfast love. And David says, this is the kind of love I want to show. Is there anyone left I can show it to? And Ziba says, yes. There is. Now, Mephibosheth is quite difficult to pronounce, and it is a very cool name. Um, It means exterminating the idol, uh, which makes him sound like something out of Doctor Who, something like that. But Mephibosheth had a life marked by tragedy. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, age just five, and just after his father and his grandfather had died, he fell from the arms of a nurse and became a cripple. He was lame. And this would have created incredible uncertainty in his life. But by chapter 9, he's a grown man and David hunts him down. He sends Ziba to find him in Lodabar, verse 5. Um, Andy and I were uh, due to meet someone this week near Brecon. We were supposed to be meeting them uh, near a place called Unthank, um, which is quite a name. 
And Lodabar is similar. It means not a pasture, not a pasture. And Mephibosheth is brought from this place of obscurity and uncertainty right into the presence of the king. He was probably carried there, wasn't he? He's clearly terrified. In verse 6, he falls flat on his face to pay homage. But David says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And suddenly a whole new world begins to open up to this man. A promise kept. Secondly, though, we see a privilege granted. A privilege granted. If the the big theme in the, the first half of this story is covenant kindness, then in the second half, it is the transformation that Mephibosheth experiences. Uh, The writer Dale Ralph Davis, he points out a variety of different uh, techniques that um, the writer of 2 Samuel uses to underline this. And the first is what's at the center. When you and I uh, write stories in English, we almost always put the main point at the end. They all lived happily after or something like that. But in Hebrew, it's different. The big point is in the middle. And here it's kind of verse 7, verse 8 as well. The writer also uses repetition to emphasize this change of status. Uh, Some of you may have seen uh, something called a wordle. It's when you take a, a piece of text and you increase the size of the individual words depending on uh, how often they appear or how important they are. And if you uh, do that to Martin Luther King's most famous speech, the big words are dream and freedom. I did that as a teacher. Well, if you did it to 2 Samuel 9, the big words would be kindness in the first half, and table in the second half. Table. On four occasions in the second half of this story, the writer wants us to see that this potential rival of David will eat at his table always. It's there in verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, and verse 13. And verse 11 puts it beautifully like one of the king's sons. There's one last technique that the writer uses to show the closeness Mephibosheth enjoys. Can you see that whenever King David speaks with Ziba, he's called the king? You see that in verse 2? And the king said, verse 3, and the king said, and Ziba said to the king, verse 4, and so on. But when he is speaking to Mephibosheth, it is David. David, David. It's all very personal. It's as if he were, as if you or I were told by the Queen, please call me Elizabeth. And Mephibosheth can hardly believe it. He sits amazed in the presence of David, his father's friend. What is your servant, verse 8, that you should show regard? For a dead dog such as I. 
In the verses that follow, he's shown grace upon grace as, as David makes practical provision for him. He's given back land that belonged to Saul. He's given servants, and his little boy has got a future too. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? I think it's maybe one of my favorite uh, chapters in the whole Bible. But what does it mean for us? How should we apply this text to our lives? Well, we could talk about uh, the importance of keeping our word. That's something we're called to as God's people. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we could stress the importance of caring for those who are weak and vulnerable. Again, that's something uh, very Christian to do. Both of these would be good applications to make from this chapter. But maybe already you can see that there's more going on here. Maybe you are beginning to see yourself in this, this story this morning. You see, in Second Samuel chapter 9, we don't just see a promise kept. We don't just see a privilege granted. We see a picture painted, a picture painted. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 and Luke chapter 24 that the whole Old Testament testifies to him. And so this passage, this story is, is part of a bigger story. It's a pointer to David's greater son. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a king who was full of kindness and love. We see this all through the Gospels, don't we? Jesus loved to show kindness to those in need. In Mark 1, he reaches out to touch and heal a man with leprosy. He identifies with him. In Mark 2, he eats with sinners, people that the religious authorities look down on. In Mark 5, he restores a demon-possessed woman a demon-possessed man, raises a dead girl, heals a sick woman. We could go on and on and on. This is what Jesus is like. I heard a story recently about uh, Prince Philip. Um, he was a very colorful character, wasn't he? Um, on one occasion, uh, at a great banquet, uh, the wife of an MP was due to sit next to him. The problem was that this uh, woman had been partially paralyzed in the past and she really struggled to eat with a knife and fork. And so when she heard that she was going to be sat next to Prince Philip, um, she was very nervous, she was very worried. But there was nothing to worry about. Prince Philip had heard about this and when he sat next to her, he handed his cutlery to a footman and started to eat with his hands. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a king with a tender heart. Maybe today, for whatever reason, you need a reminder of that. Because I think it's so easy for us, maybe if we've been Christians a while, to, to have a kind of caricature Christ. The devil loves to, to take our picture of him that we see in Scripture and distort it. But the real Jesus is, 
He's just like the David we see in 2 Samuel 9. He's totally committed to his people. He's generous. He's full of grace. So a picture is painted of Jesus here. But in this chapter, we also see a picture of our adoption. Because if you're a Christian this morning, then the Bible is so clear. You have been adopted into God's family. You have been adopted into God's family. God is your father and Jesus is your elder brother. Listen to how J.I. Packer puts it. This is a great quotation. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means, Packer says, he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Brothers and sisters, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you are part of God's family. And so let me give you three examples of how this is described in the New Testament. John 1 verse 12, to all who did receive him, and John is talking about Jesus, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, the right. We're very big on rights in our culture, aren't we? But to insist on our rights, it can sound a bit um, pompous, a bit arrogant as well. Not very Scottish, not very British. Well, God has given every Christian the right to be called a child of God. No one can take that away from you. Or 1 John 3 verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Or as the NIV puts it, and that is what we are. It just is. You can't change it. Or how about Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In love. In love. Predestination. It is not a doctrine invented by some great theologian. No, it flows. It flows from the heart of heaven, from the heart of God. In love. John 1 verse 12, 1 John 3 verse 1, Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. Maybe you need to choose one of those verses and write it down. Maybe you need to put it somewhere visible, on a mirror, on the fridge. Maybe you need to chew over it for a while or send it to a friend this afternoon. You see, Christianity is not clinical it is not simply that God forgives our sins and then just leaves us all by ourselves with a blank slate and saying, don't mess it up. No, God forgives us to bring, him, bring us home to himself. If you're not a Christian today, then you need to know this is what's on offer. 
God wants you in his family. All you have to do is ask for the privilege. Remember John 1 verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. All you need to do to be part of God's family is admit your need. Believe that Jesus died for you and confess that he is Lord. I think it can take uh, years, though, for this penny to drop in our lives as Christians. I think it can take years for us to realize that this is really true of us as Christians. But, you know, that's okay. Because you and I have got all eternity to enjoy our Father's love. And our struggling to believe it now, that doesn't make it any less true. You see, we're just like Mephibosheth. By the mercy of God, we have been brought to his table. We're part of his family. God has given us our dignity back. And we belong to him. There's a famous photo that uh, illustrates this so well. The American president, John F. Kennedy, he's, he's sat at his desk in the Oval Office. Um, he's got piles of papers next to him, lots of important tasks to do. But sitting under the table is his son, uh, John Jr. He's playing with his toys. He didn't need security clearance. He didn't need to wait in line. No, he got in because his dad was the president. And it's exactly the same with us, with every Christian. I mentioned Martin Luther King earlier. I love the way uh, that his namesake, Martin Luther, puts it. He says, it is not enough to say that we are friends. It is not enough to say that we are friends. No, John says we are called children of God. Children of God. It's really important for us to mention that with this change of status, with this new privilege comes new responsibilities. It's just like every family, isn't it? There are new ways of being. Listen to how one writer sums them up. God wants us to maintain our family honor by living for his glory. Our Father wants us to promote our family welfare by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants us to live up to our family name by behaving as the children of God. He wants us to display our family likeness by becoming more and more like his son Jesus. We are not slaves, but sons and daughters. And then he adds this, we will never be disinherited. We will never be disinherited. This call to loyalty is something that Mephibosheth understood in 2 Samuel 19 after many people had stood against King David, including Absalom, his own son. Mephibosheth would pledge his devotion afresh to David. And maybe today God is calling you to do the same. Maybe he's calling you to taste and see afresh just how good, how kind he is.
that you really can trust him. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who gives you a whole new status. He's even given bread and wine to to point back to what it cost and to point forward to a great feast to come. There's a lovely uh, old hymn that I really like that captures all this so well. It imagines all of God's people throughout history gathered together uh, at the great banquet in heaven. And it goes like this. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? But the thing is, we're not just guests. No, we're children. We've been given the family name. We've been given our own key. The table is set. In our Father's house are many rooms. And we will dwell in that house forever. Let's pray together. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing picture that you have given us in your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for adopting us into your family. And we worship you now. And ask that you would make these things real to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.